if you'd grab your Bible or your, or your app and open it to Psalm, Psalm 2, which was beautifully read for us by Maura. Thank, thanks for that. Um, we're going to look at Psalm 2 this morning. Um, it's a great privilege to, to be able to come and share, as always. Um, but it's a, it's a daunting task, um, especially when you're given free reign to choose a passage. You know, where on earth do you go in, in this book? Uh, and, and very often, I think, it's, uh, it's a difficult thing to do. Um, but, but after some deliberation, um, it ultimately came down to choice this morning between Psalm 2 or Psalm 110. Um, I think it's true that these two Psalms are the most quoted in the New Testament, um, but I'm happy to stand corrected on that if, if you want to go and search and do your homework. Um, and I guess just the gestation of this, over the last 18 months uh, or so, I've been working my way through the books of First and Second Samuel and First Kings, and these Old Testament books are all about the establishment of God's kingdom. First of all, that visible kingdom on earth, initially through the nation of Israel when David was put on the throne and then Solomon. Um, and Psalm, Psalms 2 and Psalms 110 were both written by David. And both of those focus on a future king that David didn't know but a future king that would come from David's line and a king that would establish a reign, an even greater kingdom, one that would last forever and would not be done away with. A kingdom with no end and a kingdom that one day will overpower and overwhelm every other kingdom that ever is established on this earth. And both of these psalms speak clearly and emphatically about Christ's kingdom and his reign. And I'm sure like, like me, a lot of us have been kind of wrestling with a lot of issues over the last couple of years. Um, our world seems to have gone quite mad. And these times have been confusing. And sometimes it's helpful just to stand back from all of that and actually look at some of the truths that God has clearly revealed in his words about the true nature of what is going on in this world and the true arc of history and where it's headed. Um, so that's, that's why I selected Psalm 2 this morning. I found it a great help to me to try and keep me seeing. I'm not sure if it's... Yeah, I would be described as seeing, but anyway. Um, uh, so that's where we're heading this morning. And, and I guess just by way of introduction as well, Moira picked out that final phrase in Psalm 2, which is a beautiful phrase. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I promise you we will get there, but there's some tough stuff to get through before we get to that point. So hang on. <laughs> there is encouragement coming. I want you to imagine just for a moment if, if someone was to spend every minute of every day for a week with you observing absolutely everything that you did, everything that you said, and the way in which you did those things and the way in which you said those things. What conclusions would they reach about who rules your life? 
what would they say are the rules that you choose to live by? Who or what would they say is in charge of your actions and behaviors? And if you think about society at large, this nation of Scotland was once affectionately known as the land of the book. Who do our national and political leaders look to for direction? Do they look still to the author of this book or do they look for their source of truth elsewhere? Psalm 2 deals with this fundamental question of who ultimately is in charge. And it has implications, not just for everybody in this room, but for everybody that ever lives on the planet. And that's irrespective of who you are or what position you hold in society. So as I said, we're going to get to the blessed are all who take refuge in him. But before we get there, Psalm 2, you'll find, doesn't pull any punches. And God speaks plainly through David in this psalm. If you break the psalm down, it falls into four sections, four stanzas, if you like, because it's written as a poem. And the headings I've got for each of the four stanzas, the four sections, are this. Number one, rebellion and rage. Number two, ridicule and response. Number three, rule and reckoning. Number four, repentance and refuge. All are, so that might make it a little bit easier to remember. But the words of, uh, of John Woodhouse, a uh, pastor and theologian, uh, sum up essentially what we're going to look at and discover as we go through each of these stanzas in turn. And this is what he says. The Bible teaches us that the state of the world is far worse than most people think. The Bible also teaches us that the hope of the world is more certain and wonderful than any of the world's pundits predict. So let's turn our attention to God's Word. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 3, this first stand under the title Rebellion and Rage. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2 opens with a noisy and chaotic scene, a confrontation. And on one side, what we've got is a raging, seething mob comprising all of the nations and all of the rulers and all of the peoples of this world. And this angry mob is being stirred up by kings and rulers huddled together in the background who are plotting and scheming. And on the other side is God and his anointed, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what are the mob demanding? The mob are screaming, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Ultimately, what they're looking for is to be free of God's law, to free of God's limits, and they want freedom in inverted commas. They don't want any constraints placed upon their lives. They don't want any limits placed on the way in which they manage their affairs. They don't want their lives to be ruled by anybody, especially not Christ. And this scene from Psalm 2 
reaches a crescendo. So this is written 500 years before Jesus came to earth, but in, in AD 30 or thereabouts, in the hours leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, there was plotting and scheming. Herod, Pontius Pilate, Judas Iscariot, and the chief priests were planning and plotting the crucifixion of our Lord. And remember the cries of the mob when Pilate was going to release Jesus. What did they scream? Crucify, crucify him. They wanted rid of him. And when Pilate asks the crowds, why do you want to crucify him? They actually don't give him an answer. And in the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and Luke, all that it says is that they scream louder and louder. That's often the way with crowds. Once they're stirred up into a frenzy, they're no longer able to think, and they blindly go along with whatever the mob wants. Pilate asked the very same question in Luke 23 of the chief priests and the rulers and the scribes, away from the matting crowd. And this is the answer that he received from the chief priests. In Luke 23, verse 2, it says this, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. If you think about what they're saying, it's all a question of kingship. Who gets to say how we are to govern our affairs? Who is Lord ultimately? In that day, is it Caesar or is it Christ? In this day, is it Christ or is it a government or a state or somebody else? Whose laws do we want to follow? It comes down to this. We either choose to follow God's laws or we choose to go our own way and make up man's laws. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, taught with authority. If you read Matthew 7, verse 28 and 29, it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus is unique. Jesus had authority. And that's not surprising because he is the unique Son of God. He is the author of all things, <clears throat> excuse me, and he is ultimately the lawgiver. And the rulers and the crowds are wanting to burst apart the bonds that Jesus would seek to place on their lives. They want to burst apart God's laws, the way in which God has designed this world to work, his perfect design, his good design. They want to throw those off. And if you fast forward to here we are in 2022, has anything really changed? The rulers and the crowds are still raging and rebelling against God and against His anointed. And we're continually wanting to cast aside God's law and live our own way. Nothing changes. If you just think for a moment about how the Ten Commandments which summarize God's moral law, are being completely turned on their head in our day. Dallas Willard likens it to us flying upside down. We don't even know about it. 
the rules have been flipped. And let's just, let's just go back and read the Ten Commandments as we find them in Exodus 23 to 17. Just a reminder of what God's law actually says in, in summary form. So go, uh, in, in Exodus 20, uh, verse 3, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. These commandments essentially summarize all of life and all of God's good design for life and for living. The first three commandments show us what a right relationship with God should look like, a focus of our, of our worship and what that should look like. And the, seven, the remaining seven commandments, if you think about it, they all show us what a right relationship with our work is, the right relationship with our neighbors should be, our interactions with property, how we conduct our sex lives, it touches all spheres of life, how families are to be governed, even as covered in these Ten Commandments. And these, are the ten, these commandments, this, go, this summary of God's law is essentially what we as human beings always want to cast off and flip on our heads. But if you do that, something has to take its place. And if you just take the third commandment, just as an example, the third commandment is, deals with taking the Lord's name in vain. It's about blasphemy. And, and the reason it's there is because God's name is so sacred as the center of our worship that actually taking, ridiculing or abusing His name or His character is blasphemy. You're pulling His reputation into the mud. And you may think that blasphemy is an old-fashioned and outmoded and irrelevant idea. But every society actually ends up creating its own blasphemy laws. And if you just think about our society today, if you want to commit blasphemy, you just have to question 
the beliefs that people now hold on to. You just have to put your head above the parapet and ask some questions, and lo and behold, the mob will descend. Blasphemy in our modern parlance, we would probably call hate speech these days. There are things that you're not allowed to speak about or open real, real vile or ridicule. And just as an example of that, if you just look at some of the outrage that uh, J.K. Rowling, who has openly, public, has openly and publicly criticized some of the transgender ideologies, has been canceled, essentially. She's committed blasphemy. So whatever, you, whatever way you, tur you turn God's law on its head, something has to fill the void. And that something can never be as good or as perfect as God's law. There will always be horrendous consequences as a result of it. And it's interesting, just, a, just as a side note, that often when we look at persecution of Christians across the world, probably the most common reason that people end up getting jailed or, or even executed is under the laws of blasphemy in those lands, irrespective of where they are. So back to Psalm 2 and verse 1. The psalmist is looking on at this scene. The nations are raging, and he asks the question, why? He's mystified by what's going on. All of this rebellion and rage is ultimately futile. And stanza number two, if we move on to stanza two in Psalm 2, shifts the spotlight away from the angry mob, and we're now looking at what's going on in God's throne room. How does God respond to this clamoring and noisy crowd? If you look at verse 4, this is what it says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Are you shocked by God's reaction? His laughter, his derision. He's making the nations and the rulers a laughingstock. From God's perspective, this, this angry mob trying to cast off his law, trying to live their own way, is a completely ridiculous spectacle. All of the nations of the earth are, are arrayed against them. They're shaking their puny fists, wanting to be free of his rules. But ultimately, he's still the Lord. He's still in charge. His law still is there and still governs how life is supposed to be lived. And it's foolish to think that we can throw off God's law and come up with a better way to live. This is like an ant trying to stop a soldier's boot from squashing it. So the ant can stand there waving its arms and legs all it likes, but that boot is going to come down and that ant is getting squashed whether it likes it or not. There are some things that it's just futile to resist. And if you think about it just for a moment, all of man's attempts at self-rule are ultimately doomed to failure. Because if you, you know, and every one of us wants to throw off God's commands. We've all done it. We all, we've all broken all of those 10 commandments at some point in our life. You know, and, if, and Jesus doesn't do away with the Ten Commandments. Jesus actually reinforces them. 
and actually illuminates them more for us uh, in terms of what they actually mean. In, and you read that in the Sermon on the Mount. But if you just think about it for a moment, if you were to take all of the rules in the highway code away for a day, and you were to let everybody decide exactly how they wanted to, to drive their cars on those roads, or ride their bikes on those roads, or walk on those roads, there would be absolute chaos. There would be carnage, literally. And that's what happens when we throw off God's laws. It's a choice between Christ or chaos, ultimately. But not only is this a ridiculous spectacle in God's eyes, it's also a deadly serious issue. In verse 5, mankind's rebellion and rage ignites God's terrifying wrath and anger. There are consequences associated with breaking God's law. The created cannot rise up in rebellion against their creator without incurring his wrath. And every single one of us, as I've just said, at some point, and probably at many points in our lives, have not lived up to God's law because we can't. And if you're, thinking, if you're sitting there thinking that there, you're a neutral spectator in all of this, that you don't believe in God anyway, there are no neutral spectators. There's no such thing. If you deny God's existence, if you push back against God's law, if you haven't already surrendered to Him, then essentially you're sitting there in a tank on the battlefield firing missiles at Him. And in verse 5, something else happens. Terror starts to ripple through the ranks of the crowds. What is so terrifying? Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What's terrifying is that God speaks. God responds. He doesn't remain silent. And when God speaks, stuff happens. God's spoken word will always bring about some change. If you think back to the beginning of time, God created everything in this universe through His speech, His decree. God spoke to Moses from a burning bush in the desert, in the desert and ultimately delivered Israel from Egypt from a, a life of slavery. God spoke to Saul when Saul decided to go his own way and the kingdom was taken from Saul and given to David. God spoke to Solomon, and the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. We need to pay attention when God speaks. We need to pay attention to what He says. And what does He say? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my hilly hill. You might think, what's so terrifying about that? What's so terrifying about this king on Zion? Psalm 2 is ultimately a psalm about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was written by David and looks forward in time to a time when God's promise to David would be fulfilled. And David's writing this psalm. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, there's, there's a section in 2 Samuel 7 that, that is God speaking to David and reinforcing the promise and the covenant that he makes with David. 
And, and verses 12 to 13 of that promise says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your I will raise up your offspring after you, and you sh who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. But it's important to realize that the kingdom of, that God is establishing through David's line is going to last forever. That's what's so terrifying. Ultimately, man is not in control. Every nation that has, ever, that has ever been, every empire cannot last forever. It cannot endure. There's no longer a Roman Empire or an Assyrian Empire. The British Empire has been decimated. The Iron Curtain fell in the late 1980s, and Britain did finally leave the European Union. We, everything changes. And even now, as we speak, there's a war going on in, in, in Ukraine with Russian expansionism going on. All of these kingdoms and all of these nations will ultimately pass away, but Christ's kingdom knows no end. And Christ's kingdom will ultimately triumph where all other forms of government and nations will ultimately fail. So what does the coming of this kingdom and what does this rule and reign of Christ as king mean for the nations. The third stanza, stanza opens with this, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This third stanza, this third section, I've called rule and reckoning. The focus now turns to this king who God has established on the throne in Zion, his holy hill. His holy hill. The Lord said to me, you're my son, today I have begotten you. Who is God speaking about here? This phrase, you're my son, today I have begotten you, is quoted three times in the New Testament. In Acts 13, in Hebrews 1, in Hebrews, in Hebrews 5. And Paul, when he's speaking and preaching in Acts 13, he directly quotes Psalm 2 in the context when he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And Hebrews 1, 3 to 5, Moog provides the clearest picture of who God is speaking about here. Hebrews 1, 3 to 5, you just turn to it, I'll just read it. This is a picture of Christ's coronation as king. When he, after he has been crucified, after he's been raised from the dead, Christ ascends back into heaven. And at that point, it's like his coronation. He's put on the throne as he enters heaven. And this is what it says in Hebrews 1 about that. This is Christ that's talking about. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This king is none other than the second person of the Trinity. This king is Jesus Christ, the son of God. This king is Jesus who became flesh, who was crucified and raised from the dead 2,000 years ago 
in God's royal city, Zion. And today, Christ is living and He is ruling over His kingdom. And that has implications for every single one of us and for all of the nations and for all of the rulers of the nations. Despite what it may look like on our online news feeds or the news or Twitter timelines, Christ is actually reigning and Christ is actually in charge. His moral law still stands and it still overrules all other laws that man makes which stand in opposition to that law. The arc of history is on a trajectory that is determined by God. And today, His kingdom is advancing. If you look at verse 8 and verse 9, verse 8 first of all, it says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. As Christians, we will often pray the Lord's Prayer. And that line, the second line of the Lord's Prayer is what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It may not look like it visibly that Christ's kingdom is increasing on earth, but it is. If I just take China, for example, back in 1949, there were less than a million Christians known about in China. Today, in 2020, there are now at least 100 million Christians, evangelical Christians, in the nation of China. By the year 2030, if the church continues to grow at the, at the rate it has been for the last 10 years in China, there will be over 200 million, possibly 250 million Christians in China. If you think about that for a minute, China has a population of 1 billion people. It is one of the most oppressive and secular and atheistic regimes in the world. The church there is persecuted. But we could, in our lifetimes, we could see 25% of the nation of China being committed Christians. Christ's kingdom is advancing. Make no mistake about it. Irrespective of what you see in your news feeds, that's the reality and that's the truth. And hopefully that's an encouragement because God is ultimately bringing all things under the rule and reign of Christ, so that one day, at some point in the future, all of this rage, all of this rebellion will be silenced, and every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. The warning, the stark warning in verse 9 fast-forwards to the end of time. For those who continue to oppose and resist God's rule, who refuse to surrender to Christ's authority, ultimately will be smashed into pieces. In verse 9, it says, "'You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel.'" If you look at Revelation 19, uh, verses 11 to 16, we move to the end of time. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's a direct quote from Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This smashing into pieces will just be as easy as dropping a fragile glass vase on the hard kitchen floor. And the results will just be as final because there's no way that anybody can put all of those shards back together again. The state of the world is far worse than people think. Opposing the rule of Christ is a perilous pastime with dire consequences. Is there any hope? And now we get to the final part of the psalm, repentance and refuge. Thankfully, as Woodhouse puts it, the hope of the world is more certain and wonderful than any of the world's pundits predict. In this final stanza, the psalmist turns back to the assembled kings and peoples, and he says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. My paraphrase of this, bear with it, is this. Here's the deal. You've seen who you're up against, and you have absolutely no chance of winning this war. So do the sensible thing and surrender. Receive the blessing and the protection of the King of Kings before it's too late, or suffer the consequences. It's your choice. I said at the outset that this psalm doesn't pull any punches. And the truth of God's word can grate against our sensibilities and even cause offense. And that's particularly true in the culture that we find ourselves in today, which is becoming increasingly hostile towards any truth claims. The Bible doesn't lay out before us a multitude of options to choose from, whatever fits us best. It boils down to two choices. We can either choose to follow Christ, to kiss the Son, or we can choose to go our own way. And the only hope for this world is, can be found and is found in Jesus Christ, the ruler of kings, the king of kings. And he's not like any other king. He is merciful, he's generous, he doesn't punish those who surrender to him. He doesn't bear grudges for past wrongs because this same king bore the brunt of God's wrath and allowed himself to be broken into pieces on the cross in our place. As a result, he offers us absolute forgiveness for all of our sins and he welcomes us into his kingdom, not as conquered armies, but as adopted sons and daughters. 
this king provides a safe refuge where we can find blessing, true blessing and hope. As this nation and as, as our society throws off and throws out its Judeo-Christian values, which have largely provided an explanation of who we are and how the world works, we can no longer identify Scotland as a land of the book. And as a result, as I said, we find ourselves increasingly at odds with the culture. The church, as Christ's body, represented on earth, is more obviously now in the firing line of the raging mob and the scheming rulers. So just a final encouragement. Whatever you're confronted in in your workplace or in other parts or, or, or areas of life, reflect on the truths of Psalm 2. Don't listen to the lies that the world will tell you about being on the wrong side of history because Christ cannot be overthrown. His kingdom will prevail when all other kingdoms are lying in ruins. And in that, we are to rejoice with trembling. Rejoice in the sure and certain hope that all will be well in the end and tremble before this King of kings and Lord of lords. Tremble when you realize just the enormity of his power. Tremble when you realize the extent of his grace that he's given to us. Tremble at the scope of his salvation, rescuing you from being shattered into a million pieces. So just to close, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus Christ is a good and gracious king. There is no greater place of security than in him. And when the difficulties come, when the persecution comes, we cannot, we cannot save ourselves and we cannot find security in anything outside of Christ. However, if we do choose to submit to him, he will protect us and we will find blessing. Happiness, joy, peace, security is to be found in Christ and Christ alone. Our sinful nature might believe the lie that the bonds and the cords of God's law are there to take away our freedom, but the truth is exactly the opposite. When we surrender to Christ's lordship, when we surrender to his rule over our lives, we actually find liberty and freedom because we don't have to worry about making up the laws for ourselves. It's all done for us. And evidence of that surrender to his lordship will be a change of direction and a willingness to follow him and obey his commands. So there we have it, Psalm 2. Rebellion and rage, ridicule and response, rule and reckoning, repentance and refuge. When we zoom out and see the big picture, Christ is the ruler of kings. Christ is king of kings, lord of lords, he will triumph in the end. There is no uncertainty about that outcome whatsoever. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's just pause and pray before we take communion together. Father, we just thank you for the truth of your word. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is king of kings. Lord of Lords, 
Father, we just humbly submit ourselves to you now. Father, as we come around this table, we lay down our arms and we bow our heads in worship. Father, we thank you for all that you've done. Father, we thank you that you are our refuge and ever-present help in trouble. And Father, we just thank you for the cross. Father, we thank you that when we look upon it, that this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords, was bruised, was battered, suffered at the hands of those who created him, and died in our place. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name.